0: and welcome to another episode of soccer and football uh it's me again it's edward i'm back ready for a new season uh you might not have recognized uh the podcast with the new intro song but uh it's a new season so i felt like it was a good time to enact some change and and with that came a change in music and so i wanted to make sure to to start off with that the uh artist gets proper recognition for the, for the new song I'm using. It's called lost in love. It's by a uh, sound And I found it through this very neat website called upbeat, where you can get music for podcasts and YouTube videos and that sort of thing. Um, and, and the artists get uh, compensated and you know, you can, I feel like it's normal to give the, the artist some recognition. So, um, Thank you to Sound Roll. I think it's a really cool track, and I'm excited to use it for for this season and maybe seasons uh, to come. Uh, But yeah, so like I said, new season. Uh, We're going to talk about some more soccer and politics and law, and we're actually going to broaden the subject a little bit uh, for this season. We're going to talk about sports institutions around the world and how they can impact politics and not just soccer. So... For example, the one I'm going to talk to you about today is the International Olympic Committee or the IOC. So for those of you who don't know, the IOC is to the Olympics kind of like what FIFA is. Uh, At least it's similar in terms of how the events, you know, get decided for where the events are actually and stuff like the Olympic committees of different uh, countries put in bids to host the events at different cities, and then the IOC reviews it, votes, and, and gets to pick. And it's a similar kind of you know sport institution. And because the Olympics are so big, obviously, there's a lot of intersection between sports and or between the institution and uh, politics. However, I wanted to kick off with a quote that actually contradicts everything I just said. Because it's from the IOC president, Thomas uh, Bach. And he says, The Olympic Games are not about politics. The International Olympic Committee, as a civil, non-governmental organization, is strictly politically neutral at all times. Now, that might be a strange quote to start off a podcast about sports and politics. But I think despite the degree of separation that the Olympics uh, tries to obtain with between themselves and 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 politics, uh, they are definitely connected in in my opinion. And to illustrate that, I'm going to talk about a couple things here, um, starting with with rule fifty. Um, so rule fifty of the Olympic Charter bans any form of political protests during the games. So no one. No athletes or anyone can use the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games, the closing ceremony, uh, or the podiums, or anything like that to promote a political stance. And even if you go back through history, so I think the most famous example is the 1968 Mexico City Games, during which um, two American athletes, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, were banned after they raised their fists on the podium during the the Mexico City 68 games. And uh, they were they were just banned from the games because that was viewed as a political statement. And Rule 50 just didn't allow that. However, Rule 50, I'm going to talk about a little bit later, might might be changing. And I think that's important to note. Uh, But before we get to that, uh, the case study we're going to examine today is China and how the IOC and politics and where the games are chosen to be held are linked in terms of politics. They, they, they really are. And to, to kind of illustrate that, we're going to go back to the 2008 games that were supposed to be, or that were, in, in Beijing, China. So on, on March 20th, 2008, uh, Tibetan monks, started peaceful demonstrations for greater autonomy for tibet uh, from china and the demonstrators ended up clashing with security and the chinese government began cracking down on the local population started making arrests there were reports of of beatings and 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 even shootings and it was you know a full protests um going on very very tense situation Tibet claimed that the death toll was about 200 people while China claimed it was 20. Um, so, you know, which number is accurate? I'll, I'll let you determine that. But some members of the international community began criticizing China a little bit for, for what was going on. And four days later, so this would you know mid-March or late March 2008, the ceremonial Olympic torch relay... Uh, was scheduled to begin. And that's kind of like when the torch before arriving in Beijing, you know, that symbolic Olympic torch before arriving in the city of where the games are held kind of goes on tour, if you will, around the world. It's supposed to symbolize how, you know, sports bring us together and and create that unity. And the slogan for that year was actually Journey of Harmony. And the torch was scheduled to to spend three days in Tibet. Uh, But because of all the events, the protests, the political um, instability, and even political statement that wanted to be made, uh, that was reduced to a single day in, in Tibet. And I think that already kind of illustrates how politics and games are intertwined. No s- political statement was really made, nothing of the sort, but something political kind of got mixed in with something that was just supposed to be the Olympic Games, as in the the ceremonial torch, and the torch actually was also had a dispute um, regarding Taiwan. So Taiwan wasn't pleased with the structure of the relay and where the torch was supposed to go when, because they believed that China was using it to demonstrate that Taiwan was. Chinese territory. In other words, like the way the tour was set up, Taiwan felt as though China was trying to illustrate that the Taiwan stop was actually a part of the Chinese nation stop for the torch. And so the two got into a dispute and ultimately the torch never ended up going to Taiwan. So, you know, arguably that was China trying to uh, send a political statement using the Olympic Games and Taiwan, trying to send a political statement using the Olympic Games. And uh, following those events, and especially the events in Tibet, some world leaders uh, decided to to protest, essentially, such as Chancellor Angela Merkel, the Germany's uh, chancellor, and she refused to come to the to the opening ceremony, which, in and of itself, is kind of a political statement. Uh, and it's through the Olympic Games again, once again. But during the games, there weren't many events in terms of boycotting or protests from athletes during the games. It was actually quite uh, or I should say relatively calm. And uh, but still, the International Olympic Committee received a lot of criticism for awarding the games to China despite you know what people believe to be human rights violations. And so Richard Pound, the one time vice president of the IOC, asserted that the Games were awarded to China, quote, in the hope of improvement in human rights. And indeed, the Chinese themselves said that having the Games would accelerate progress in such matters, end quote. Now, some say that China did improve leading up to the Games, um, but, you know, the Darfur war, the treatment of the Tibetan protests, and and other violations, quite frankly, left a lot to be desired. Uh, at least that's my perspective. I, I don't feel like there was much improvement. Of course, I wasn't studying international affairs or very much in the news back then in terms of what was going on, but it looked like there was a lot to be desired. desired. And so the IOC continued to face heavy criticism saying you know, that no improvement was made and, and they're just covering their backs essentially. But then they made another argument, which I uh, believe a lot more. And essentially, they said that those human rights violations would not have been on the front page of newspapers around the world if it were not for the Olympics. So in other words, for better or worse, the Games put a spotlight on China for the international community to clearly see what was happening. And I think I believe this a lot more. Perhaps the events in Tibet would have been front page newspaper, but perhaps not. And regardless, I think the audience reached through those kind of events happening in conjunction or just before the Olympics meant that a wider amount of people knew about it. I I believe that to be true. I mean, I don't have the the numbers to back it up. It's impossible to to really show with, with numbers, I would think. But I, I do think it probably helped raise awareness in terms of what was happening in China. And perhaps leaders such as Angela Merkel or Nicolas Sarkozy, the French president at the time, wouldn't have faced as much domestic pressure to to speak out against China had the Olympic Games not been awarded to China and essentially helped shed light on the events going on there and and the human rights violations going on there. So I think it's, I think it, it's a convincing argument, in my opinion, that sending these games to, to different cities around the world helps put a spotlight on them that, yes, can be used for good, but uh, in terms of that city trying to illustrate the good aspects of it, but also it puts a spotlight on them in terms of maybe what they're doing poorly and and the international community becomes more aware of problems and forces their, their leaders to, to act against it. I mean, that's the essence of how democracy should work is... People should be educated about what's going on and pressure political leaders to to act upon different events. And so I actually think the Olympic Games helped democratic democratic excuse me, processes kind of play out in that sense. So that's kind of it for 2008. But fast forward a couple years, and now China is set to host the 2022 Winter Olympic Games. Um, other cities such as Oslo and Norway were also being considered, but they ended up dropping out of the race because of the cost of hosting and it's simply too high and you know events such as you know COVID really exasperate that and so it came down to Beijing China or Almaty Kazakhstan and essentially the IOC elected to elected for China to host the games and since then various human right, right groups have asked the International Olympic Committee to change their decision uh, as specifically with regards to China's Continued conduct in Tibet, and more recently in Hong Kong, and their conduct with uh, the Uyghurs, the the minority group in China that uh, um, people are believe believe a genocide is being committed against them, and and there's plenty of evidence to to support that. And the IOC explained that awarding the Olympic Games to a national Olympic Committee, so in this case China, doesn't mean that the IOC necessarily agrees with their political structure or social circumstances or human rights standards in the country. And that's actually a, a quote from them regarding that, that human rights standards in the country. They, it doesn't mean that they agree with it. And their official statement added that they have quote, received, received assurances that the principles of the Olympic Charter will be respected in the context of the Games. And that quote, the IOC must remain neutral on all global political issues. Now, so again, reiterating their neutral stance, which I've mentioned, yes, they can be neutral as a body, but the IOC are inherently intertwined with uh, with politics. But, you know, receiving assurances that the principles of the Olympic Charter will be respected in the context of the Games is awfully specific. And let me explain why. So the second principle of the Charter is... Quote, the goal of Olympiism is to play sport at the service of the harmonious development of humankind with a view to promoting a peaceful society concerned with the preservation of human dignity. So you would think that, you know, human right violations and, and potentially genocides of minorities do not match that charter. But in their statement, their last quote there says in the context of, of the games, so kind of really reducing the context of when the actual Olympic Charter needs to be followed, and quite frankly, I think that they're falling short. The IOC in terms of what they what they can do and and what they have the the power to do. Um, while I agree that it's dangerous to to mix sport and politics in terms of the actual events or the opening or closing ceremony or the podiums and whatnot you know to a certain degree human rights violations are not political they're just human rights um and so i would think that the ioc you know could point out human rights violations um and and say that it's wrong uh, I don't see that as an issue. So, for example, they, in my opinion, they could point out that the treatment of Uyghurs is wrong. But a statement that I would less agree so in terms of what they can do as a body would be something like regarding territory. So, regarding Chinese territorial. Um, Expansion, I don't know if expansion is the right word to use, but you understand what I'm saying. In terms of, you know, Hong Kong and Taiwan and and whatnot, I think it would be wrong for the IOC to say something in terms of who that territory belongs to, but it is okay for the IOC to say something regarding the treatment of human beings. And that's that's my personal opinion, and you're welcome to, to disagree with it. And with regards to to athletes and what they can do, I think they can use their, you know, social media following and the the bigger platform that they gain through being Olympians to their advantage. And then what they do during the actual events, um, I guess, is more or less up to, to the to the IOC. Um, but actually, there there has been progress, and I want to make sure to point that out. So. First of all, the IOC has determined that beginning with the twenty twenty four Olympic Games in Paris, cities have to adhere to the United Nations guiding principles on business and human rights. And essentially, I think that's the IOC kind of getting closer to my opinion in terms of what they can say and do. Because giving them giving cities and inherent and thus countries kind of a measuring stick as to what the ioc accepts and what they don't by telling them the united nations guiding principles on business and human rights is what you have to follow is really a step in the right direction because again in my opinion that is not political like the united nations guiding principles on business and human rights is not a political thing it is you know human rights to a certain degree are just shouldn't be political and so enforcing that cities follow them I think it's probably the right thing to do from the IOC. And the IOC talking about it, the IOC talking with host cities and even playing games in cities which perhaps have to fix violations to be able to host the cities is going to help bring the spotlight to them like it perhaps did in China and help changes occur. Uh, And now I want to tie it all back together with Rule 50. So Rule 50 was the one regarding the athletes specifically and what can happen during events and things like that. So, the IOC sent out a survey across the globe asking for athletes' opinions on Rule 50. And the results were quite varied. So, there were 218 athletes that were surveyed, representing 25 different countries. And 153 of those athletes out of the 218 said that Rule 50 needs to be complete or is, excuse me, completely or partially unjust. So, you know, a substantial majority 189 of those athletes so a huge majority believe discrimination is something the IOC should address and 191 believe that the IOC should reevaluate its rules regularly so huge majorities for both thinking that the IOC should address discrimination and that the IOC should reevaluate its rules however only 39 called for the abolition of rule 50 While 98 recommended amendments and 81 said that no change should be made, and I think I align with that majority of athletes—that 98—that amendments should be made. I think it's too strict uh, in terms of what can be said and done, Uh, but I don't think it should be abolished completely because I do sometimes think it's a good—think it's a good idea to separate sports and politics during the event themselves, if that makes sense. Like not, you know, the platform sports provide i think that's fine to use as a tool but the games themselves should somewhat be separated in my opinion uh in terms of actual political statements right like i talked about earlier there are some things which to me are not politics and can definitely be be said and addressed so you know now it's the next step you know how will the ioc act on those survey results will anything change um and perhaps the the olympic games ahead are the really only way to tell so that's gonna wrap things up for me for today uh i just wanted to get a first uh, case study out there of china and the ioc and and give uh, you an idea of what was going on in terms of sports institutions and politics so we're gonna have a couple more of these uh, in the next you know weeks and months i'm excited to do them i'm excited for this new season i've missed doing this Uh, It was a long, long break, um, but feels good. And now I'm ready to to rock and roll. And I hope you're going to enjoy this new season. So that's it for me. And I hope you have a great rest of your day.